When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, my friend, and welcome into my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's time again for the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. Your humble host. I talk about movies and TV on the program. In a little bit, we'll be hearing from Andy Sedlak, my good friend and co-host, who takes you through an odyssey into uh, streaming music and uh, gives you his picks and adds to his never-ending playlist, which at this point is, uh, I mean, it's going to take you like a week to listen to that playlist straight through without, um, you know, hearing the same song twice. So, and that is available on Spotify, by the way. But thank you very much for tuning in to the show as always if you uh, are new to the program welcome in please leave us a nice five-star review out there at uh, itunes especially and uh, recommend us to your friends i mean it's free i know they're all free but i think we do something unique here because you know we don't sit around and we're not celebrities bullshitting with other celebrities we're not even two guys bullshitting with each other this is a monologue program i talk i pass it over to andy he talks and outside of a couple special episodes we don't like chat together we don't go off on these you know, rants where we're pontificating back and forth about how great, you know, we are and how funny we are and everything. It's just really about the stuff that we're talking about, about the shows, about the movies, about the music. We try to keep it on that. And it's not an interview show, you know, like so many of them are. We hear the same anecdotes over and over again. This is These are just our thoughts on the things that are streaming right now. So welcome into the show. Once again, Clint Davis sitting in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I got to tell you, I'm about to become a father for the first time, probably for the last time as well. But I've been thinking a lot about how that's going to affect me as someone who's always been obsessed with watching and listening to so many things, with being with devouring culture. That's something that I've always been obsessed with ever since I was a child. I always say joke that I was raised by Viacom, you know, because I was a kid. I watched Nickelodeon all the time, and then I went from there. To watching MTV all the time. But I'm wondering, you know, kind of how is it going to change me? I mean, am I going to all of a sudden like turn into a bore when it comes to my entertainment choices? Because I've always been anything but that, I feel. Will I suddenly find movies that I've loved for so long to be too vulgar? Am I going to let him kind of uh, control whatever, you know, he wants to watch kind of like the way that I had it? I mean, basically, you know, my dad would take me to the movie store with him and I would pick out, you know, just like eight or nine movies, whatever I wanted to watch. And I would just spend a weekend kind of devouring them. So uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of supervision there. So I don't know. Will it be something like that? Will I try to influence the shows and movies that he likes? Will he influence mine? 
Will I start watching things through a different lens? Will I start watching things with a different attitude? I don't know. And music's an interesting one, too. I think even, maybe even more so because you're in the car uh, all the time and, you know, he's going to hear what you hear. So, and understand it and repeat it more, I would think, than, you know, watching a movie one time. So it's an interesting question. I'll be uh, updating you on that as uh, as time passes by here, but that's kind of what I've been thinking about lately. Coming up next, Stardust Memories. Baby. Hi, caramba! Bar! Dad! Oh, here's what I was looking for. Blue chips closed up three and three quarters. Oil service stocks slumped slightly on the news of... Son, you shouldn't watch that other channel. It's only for mommies and daddies who love each other very much. I want you to promise me you won't watch that channel ever again. Okay. Promise me. I promise I will never watch that channel again. Good boy. All right, let me go ahead and get things going as I always do. Let me go ahead and light my, my stogie up here in my closet. And this month's episode marks a, uh, a special milestone in show history. This is going to be the 30th time I've done the segment known as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. So our 30th entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs ever is going to be this month's uh, edition. And it's July, and I feel like everywhere you go in July, you can't go anywhere without hearing about, you know, American military pride and hearing fake bombs and guns going off in your neighborhood with everybody lighting fireworks at all hours of the day and night. So I figured that I'd go with a theme that will make anyone who knows it think about the Army immediately when they hear it. This theme song first played on television in 1972 when people flipped on CBS to watch the debut of M.A.S.H. If you know anything about this song, it's got one of the greatest titles, I think, uh, of any song, regardless of medium, in history. The song is called Suicide is Painless. That's just a great title. And, of course, the song was first heard in Robert Altman's 1970 movie, M.A.S.H., which the show was based on. And in the movie, M.A.S.H., the song Suicide is Painless actually had lyrics. The story behind that is is fantastic. I just learned this. I did not know this. But apparently Robert Altman one of the great directors ever, he needed a satirical song that had stupid lyrics and was meant to lampoon a character's fake suicide in one scene. So they came up with this idea for a song, Suicide is Painless, and he wanted it to be stupid because the movie MASH and the show too, I mean, it was always kind of a, a smart-ass like, satire. It wasn't a dead serious thing about you know military pride and the strength of the you know American war machine. It wasn't that at all. I mean, this was like basically a, a group of goofs kind of in the army uh, treating people's injuries, you know, not out there killing people. They were trying to fix people up just to send them right back out again to be shot one more time. So Allman wanted a song that was going to have silly lyrics. He was unable to write lyrics that he felt were ridiculous enough. So he turned to his 14-year-old son, Mike Altman, who actually pulled it off. I mean, obviously, if you need stupid, uh, if, if you need something stupid written, why not ask a 14-year-old boy? They'll probably come back with something really good. So as a result, Mike Altman, who is the co-writer of Suicide is Painless, later became a millionaire from royalties just for being the co-writer when the song was used on the TV show's theme song for 11 years. So this 14-year-old kid 
ended up making more than a million dollars, according to Robert Altman, just for being the co-writer of this song, which is absolutely incredible. And he, his dad just had him write it on a lark. So, I mean, that's got to be one of the, the greatest success stories ever for some kid who was asked to do something stupid and made a ton of money off of it, especially in the pre-YouTube generation. <laughs> So the theme song, Suicide is Painless, was written by Mike Altman and Johnny Mandel. And and the version used in the show is an instrumental. It doesn't have the lyrics in it. So really, it's just Johnny Mandel's song at that point. And if you don't know anything about Johnny Mandel, this guy is a Juilliard-educated music composer who worked with jazz legends like Count Basie and Woody Herman. He worked with Sinatra. He, He won an Oscar and a Grammy for his 1965 song, The Shadow of Your Smile which came from the movie The Sandpiper. And in addition to MASH, uh, Mandel also did the music for Caddyshack, The Verdict, one of my absolute favorite movies of the 80s, and the original Freaky Friday with little Jodie Foster. So he had an amazing career. So the song over the years has been covered by everyone from Ray Conniff to Marilyn Manson. And it's hard not to think of this song whenever you hear helicopter blades whirring. I know it's one of the first things that pops into my head. MASH the series ran for more than 250 episodes in 11 seasons on CBS. It was a cultural phenomenon and is still considered one of the most thoughtful and original TV shows ever made, even if the laugh track is a little bit controversial. But, I mean, think about it. It's a sitcom about war. I mean, who'd have thought that a show like that would be greenlit, let alone would last so long and would be so popular with so many people? It lasted four times as long as the actual Korean War did. I mean, the the show was about the Korean War. The show went on for 11 years. The war was only for about three years. So, I mean, that's incredible. And how about this? If you didn't know anything about MASH, you probably know that the final episode of the show still stands as the most watched episode of TV in history. And that is a record that's never going to be touched um, just in terms of share of audience. And the Super Bowl did end up beating it in terms of the total number of viewers. A couple years ago, the Super Bowl finally beat the MASH finale. But we're talking about an episode of a TV show and an episode of a half-hour sitcom at that. So the the facts on that final episode are absolutely mind-boggling. Nearly half of the entire country watched it live on TV And the episode pulled in a 77 share. If you don't know anything about TV ratings, what that means is that 77% of all TVs that were on at the time in America were watching MASH. 77%. So more than one in every three people watching TV was watching MASH. That's absolutely insane. Or I'm sorry, I should say more than two in every three people is watching MASH at that one point together. That is insane. That will never be touched again. So if you don't take anything away from this, take away that MASH's finale is like the greatest TV event in the history of TV events. It's iconic, it's memorable, and it's oddly beautiful as well. Suicide is Painless from MASH. That's my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. You know what I always think of when I think of MASH and I think of 
that theme song because they played that song at the end of the episodes of MASH also. It was the opening and it was the, the song that played over the closing credits of each episode. And so I always think of that song playing right before the TV would go off the air. Um, if you remember that, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember like if the TV was left on all night and if I'd wake up for whatever reason at, at like, you know, two thirty in the morning or something and mash was on as it was coming to an end and that song was playing over the closing credits, that's the last thing you'd hear. And then, you know, the TV would, the, the network would go off the air for the rest of the night. So that's one of the first things I always think of when I think of the MASH theme song. And like I said, can't hear a helicopter without uh, getting that tune stuck in your head. And that tune, it's going to be in your head now for the rest of the day. So you're welcome for that, too. Okay, so a while ago on the Stream Police, you can look back through uh, all of our old episodes and and find this one. It's listed in the title, uh, Westworld. I talked on the show about Westworld. We talked about the first season. Now, that's been like two years ago since the first season actually aired they took a long break between seasons and everybody was kind of i think a little trepidatious because the first season really um it was a pretty strong like one season one-off could have been just like this great little mini series of tv that i think people would have been talking about for a long time but they decided obviously to send it into a second season and they took so long that i think a lot of people were like oh my god is it gonna hold up is it still gonna be good is it gonna be interesting does it have anything left to say And so season two of Westworld, Beth and I just finished it, um, and it just wrapped up on HBO. You can stream all episodes of Westworld on uh, HBO Now and HBO Go right now if you've been wanting to get into this series. And what I'll say is this. We rewatched the first season before the second season started because it's short. It's 10 episodes. It's um, a confusing show, so we wanted to remember what had happened because, you know, it had been two years since we had watched this, and we needed to catch up again. We needed more than a a 90-second recap of what had happened so we watched season one again and if you remember my review before of Westworld it wasn't my favorite show ever I was kind of um just left a little I don't know I felt a little flat by it because it had just no emotion in it whatsoever the show was so I mean I hate to use the word robotic because obviously that's stupid when you're talking about a show that's mostly about robots um but it was and I didn't feel a lot and it was really just a show I felt about like you know mysteries being unraveled and and twists and that was kind of what made the show so exciting now I have to say on the second time through I found myself liking that first season more than I did the first time through it because I knew a lot more so I wasn't being surprised I was kind of seeing the way they laid everything out and the hints they gave which sometimes were not subtle at all if you if you know the twists of season one of Westworld, when you go back and watch it again, you're going to be like, how did I not see any of this coming? Because it's like all laid out there. There's foreshadowing in pretty much every episode to the things that are going to come. And it's, uh, it's just, it was well done as far as the way it was planned. I mean, you could tell that they had really kind of painstakingly planned out that first season of the show. So I really appreciate that. I like that when a lot of work goes into it and the show looks like a million bucks. That was always true about Westworld. It looks great. And the cast is, is fantastic. I mean, I think Anthony Hopkins is doing some of the best work of his entire career um, in his role there. And Evan Rachel Wood, again, I, probably the best work of her career in uh, in Westworld as well. Just uh, She does a fantastic job uh, throughout the course of both seasons, but I really liked her in season one a lot. Um, and and it's, just a, it's just a cool, you know, universe, I think, that they created in that show. And it's an idea that's not that far-fetched for there to be this theme park where 
rich people can go and can manipulate and do whatever they want to to these robots that are so you know like more human than human basically um and then suddenly you know obviously the ai the the robots start coming to life and 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 wreaking havoc so it's it's you know and it's a big allegory obviously for rights of all uh, of humans of all kind and um right even animal rights and just just rights of of having a life and so there are a lot of lessons i think you can still take away from westworld that that make sense and that we need uh to this day so i will give it a lot of credit for that but i i really did like the first season more when i went back and watched it a second time knowing what i uh would end up knowing at the end so let's get to season two season two like i said just wrapped up on hbo now or on HBO, I should say. I was watching on HBO now. <laughs> and I I gotta say, it was it was a little bit of a slog to get through, I felt like. I did not find myself like when we were rewatching season one, I was excited for every episode. I was like, Oh, you wanna watch the next one? You wanna watch the next one? With season two, it wasn't really like that. It wasn't like, oh man, I can't wait to, you know, find out what happens on the next episode. I just felt like it it just turned into to something that it wasn't in the first season and that was it kind of just turned into like this terminator style action show where like so many other shows on TV are these days i mean thanks to the popularity of a series like the walking dead you know which is the the most popular you know show on cable television and even game of thrones on hbo is, has risen to such popularity and those shows have so much action in them and so much um so much killing I mean, constantly, it almost becomes more like a, you don't even care so much as to what's happening in the show as you care about, well, which character is going to get killed this week? Like, that's what people make bets on. And it, it's stupid, you know? I mean, that's not what, it, it's not what it should be about. I mean, when you watched some of the, you know, great character-driven shows of the of recent TV history, like The Sopranos or like Breaking Bad um, or The Wire, you weren't going into it thinking, well, who's going to get killed this week? I mean, characters did get killed sometimes, but it wasn't a thing that, like, that wasn't what you looked forward to. You know, it was a big bummer, and it was shocking when it happened, but I feel like in Westworld, and in shows like Walking Dead, and in Game of Thrones, it's like, well, who are they going to kill this season? Who's going to make it out alive? You see news stories like that all the time, and that's not what it should be about. It's not the Hunger Games. I mean, it's a TV series, and we're supposed to, you know, really like these characters, and 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 get into their stories and it's we're not just supposed to be counting down to when are they going to die and how are they going to kill them like that's all you care about westworld season two turned into kind of like a a big there were so many scenes of just like shoot them up action scenes with you know the with machine guns and stuff i mean not like in the first season there was a lot of killing but it was you know, some of the um, androids being killed, and then, of course, they would be brought back to life, and they were using period weapons. They were using, like, the Old West rifles and the revolvers and using bows and arrows and, and knives. And in the ne- in the second season, though, I mean, they've got machine guns out there and stuff, and it's just it's kind of too much. And the show just at times didn't feel like the kind of character-driven show that I thought it was in the first season. It turned into more of, like, just kind of the big, dumb action show. Uh, which it became in the second season. And I have to say also, the middle part of season two is really where it just dragged big time for me. There's a part when, and they teased to it in the very late in the first season that there's a whole other theme park and, you know, there's Westworld and then, oh, there's also Shogun World, which is like an ancient Japanese theme park that's supposed to be really extreme for, for people who thought Westworld was too tame. And that's what we hear. And ultimately what we get is like two episodes 
set in Shogun World in the middle of the season. And that's kind of it. And then we're just done with it. And there's no, there are no guests there. It's just all hosts. It's all robots. So it doesn't even make any sense, especially the fact that we never really heard about it. I mean, what an undertaking to keep something like this running. And especially when it's supposed to be more hardcore, so it's scarier. And you would think there'd be more danger there for the guests. I would think that we would have heard a lot more about this, uh, especially when we are dealing with the security team in the first season, but it just seems like they slapped it together and they were like, well, this would be cool. What if they had like an Epcot, like a second park? And they were like, yeah, that sounds good. And then they threw it together and they didn't really do anything with it. It didn't make any sense. And it was just kind of dumb. The only, the only, you know, purpose it served was to show us that the, the hosts, their lives were kind of meaningless to the creators because I mean, all they did was kind of duplicate all their storylines and put them in a new park so, but we already knew that we didn't need to, we didn't need any further proof that the lives of these androids were, you know, worth less than the lives of humans. I mean, that was for sure. But there were a couple interesting uh, plot lines that developed in season two that I thought were timely, namely um, there's a story, a big storyline about data sharing, about privacy um, comes up in uh, season two, which I cannot imagine was on their minds at all in season one. But since all the stuff has, has come out about Facebook and about all these other apps that use your data and, you know, how it can get sold and it becomes, that becomes the product that these companies deal in is user data. Um, I think it, it worked in season two and it made sense. I didn't think that it felt too, like that didn't feel too slapped together, even though I'm sure it was something that they came up with in the off season. Um, and not something that they came up with before the first season, but it worked well and it, it furthered the idea that, you know, these, the, the company running Westworld is really just an evil corporation. And, uh, you know, their motives are not just to entertain people who come to the park and make money doing that. Also, there was a lot more Tessa Thompson in the second season, which you can never have too much of her uh, on this show. She's just so good at being nasty and, uh, you know, being manipulative and just being a hard ass. She's fantastic. I love her. I hope we get to see her more uh, in movies uh, as, as uh, you know, time passes here. But she, she does great work in Westworld season two. And they also introduced a, a new female character that I thought was fantastic as well. I won't get into, you know, who she is, but uh, she joins the show and then she's kind of uh you know just not really used enough i felt like because of how interesting i thought she was and how much she added to the character really that ed harris plays uh, which is the man in black and it's a guy that we do get a lot more of his backstory in this season and i think it that ultimately helps as well we get more information on him and he's less of like a mythic figure and a little bit more of a human by the time the season uh the season wraps up so like I said, middle of season two, not so good. I really, I did like the beginning of season two. I did really like the end of season two. I think they took it places in the end that are going to leave this show, um, that are going to leave me more excited for season three than I was for season two. It seems like they're going to go to a wildly different place with season three because how much more could they do, you know, just at Westworld? At this point, I mean, we've seen so much of what the park Westworld has to offer. Where could we go from here? And I think in, in the end of season two, they tell us where they're going to go from here. And I think it, it leaves the future open up for a lot of possibilities, a lot of scary possibilities um, in season three. So I am looking forward to that. Uh, but, yeah, the middle of season two just didn't really like it. Now, there there is one episode toward as it comes toward the tail end of, of season two that follows 
one of the uh, Native American characters in the show, which I thought was the best episode of, of the whole season and maybe one of the best episodes of the entire series. Uh, so if you've watched it, you know which one I'm talking about. That was just powerful. That was total all character. It was, you know, you were totally invested emotionally. And this show just has not gotten me invested emotionally in the past. I don't care about the love stories. I don't really care that much about most of their lives. I mean, Maeve is probably about the only one that I really do, you know, I, I really feel some kind of connection with. But other than that, I just don't. And, uh, but in that episode, when you follow the Native American character, it, it was great. That was masterful TV. It was very well written. I'm not sure who wrote that episode, who directed that episode, but. I could see them going on to do a movie because it was it was a very strong just episode that didn't it didn't matter where it fell in the series. It would have made sense. You could watch it kind of anywhere. You could watch it on its own. And I think it would be strong as long as you knew a little bit going in about what Westworld is and uh, the difference between the guests and the host. But just that was fantastic TV. So anyway, Westworld season two uh, is right now on HBO. Now it's streaming for you the whole thing. Uh, Ten episodes again. So, you know, if you like big, like, big TV that goes for uh, more for high concept than it does for th- that human connection that you that you get sometimes that makes you feel emotional, that makes you feel drawn to a character. If you're more into, like, the big impressive set pieces, the big ideas, the, the huge allegories, if you're a big sci-fi dystopia fan, y- you know, you should... Do yourself a favor and watch Westworld both seasons, 20 hours, not too much of an undertaking um, because there's some really cool stuff here. I think the show looks so good and they've really realized the world of Westworld. I think it feels real. It feels like a place you could visit. Um, It all looks great and it all feels like, yeah, this is a park and they kind of thought of everything. uh, I think when they were building this world. So if you like that kind of stuff, you'll really enjoy Westworld. Uh, But if you're looking for, a show that's going to give you a connection to the characters. You're not really going to find it here. At least I haven't found it here. I haven't found myself, uh, you know, just loving these characters like I do in other TV series. They're all just kind of whatever. And as they kill them, you just kind of go, oh, and there goes another one. And that's 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 kind of depressing because, I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about people in a TV show. And I don't just want to see them used as pawns for cool death scenes. Uh, so that's my take, though. Middle of season two, easily skippable. The rest of it, though. Um, good stuff. It was, uh, it was, again, it was high quality and I'm looking forward to season three. I'll check that out and give you a full report on that. Maybe in a couple years, whenever they finally get around to doing it. Dreams don't mean anything, Dolores. They're just noise. That answer doesn't seem to satisfy you. Because it's not completely honest. You frighten me sometimes, Dolores. Why on earth would you ever be frightened of me? I'm frightened of what you might become. Okay, before I toss things over to Andy, who's he's got a really interesting thing to talk about this week with... Uh, actors who dabble in music and and what are kind of the dangers and the 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 success stories out of that um real quick i told you that you know we rewatched season one of westworld and i actually enjoyed it more the second time around but i got to give you a story about the perils of the rewatch because sometimes something that you enjoyed watching the first time is best left 
as just a memory of something that you enjoyed the first time because upon further inspection, it just doesn't pass the test. I found this out recently when Beth and I went back and rewatched the entire Mighty Ducks trilogy, and I was so excited to watch these movies. They had them all at the library, and I was just like, you know what? Let's watch the Mighty Ducks movies. Why not? We're sitting at home. You know, it's it's like an hour and like 20 minutes per movie. We can easily just burn through this, and it'll be fun. We'll be reliving some of our childhood. We had both, you know, seen all three of the movies, and I, I loved them, had them uh, on had the first two on VHS. I did not have the third one, but uh, just I, I love these movies. These were a staple of my childhood, and I'm sure if you're around my age, uh, they probably were a staple of yours as well. So we decided to rewatch them, and we were met with some of that old familiar disappointment that can come with reliving childhood favorites as an adult. I remember a few years ago this happened to me when I rewatched uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, another one of my favorite movies as a child, and I was just so like. I was like, how is this so bad? And I wrote, I ended up writing about it on OverdueReview.com about my experience with that movie. But yeah, I mean, sometimes, and I probably most of the time, that's what happens when you rewatch a movie that you used to love. Disney animated movies, I have noticed, though, seem to be the only childhood favorites that I've found that continue to be great when you watch them as an adult. Those are just the whole, all of them. All those Disney animated movies, no matter how old you were when you first saw them, those still hold up today. Uh, when you give them a rewatch that I've noticed the classics anyway, the ones that, you know, I watched when I was a kid, as far as like Dumbo and, and Jungle Book and, um, you know, Pinocchio and even like Lion King, Aladdin, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Those are still really good when you rewatch them uh, to this day. But most of those kids movies just they're made for kids. And so when you get older, you watch them and you go, oh, man, this is just really not so. Not so good, but okay, let, let's, let's real quick just talk about the Mighty Ducks trilogy. So Mighty Ducks 1 was, I got to say, every bit as good as I remembered it being. It was actually still very funny. It had that great setup of this guy getting a DUI, you know, and being forced to coach a children's hockey team as his punishment to his community service. And he used to be a hockey player when he was a kid and he loved it and but he hates it now and he hates kids and so he's just a big asshole and he's got to coach these kids and of course they he leads them to greatness um and the opening title sequence in mighty ducks is just as intense as ever with that synthesizer score and those dark letters and the pain of gordon bombay's childhood dreams shattering and you missed this shot you're not just letting your team down you're letting me down too remember it's not worth playing that's right. Okay, sir. Let's go. I have to say, though, that Bombay was more of an asshole than I remembered from watching it as a kid. I, I kind of thought he was... I, I liked him when I was a kid, but he's just kind of a dick, like, through like all three of the movies really, especially in the first one, he's just, a, he's like a major asshole. So that kind of shocked me going back to, to watch that. I also didn't realize that he was only supposed to be in his late twenties. It made me feel older than shit that I'm now older than Gordon Bombay was in the first Mighty Ducks movie. That is really sad, you know, because I was a contemporary of Charlie back when I watched these movies, but now here I am older than Gordon Bombay. Amazing. But you know, the pain came when we watched D2, the sequel, because that was my favorite one of the entire trilogy. And I was like, oh, my God, D2, so funny. It's like the funniest, one of the funniest movies that I watched when I was a kid. I thought this movie was comedy gold, loved it. But upon rewatch, I got to tell you, 
unnecessary, unfunny, and unoriginal. The three things that all sequels have a danger of being. And I recently heard an interview with the writer of the Mighty Ducks trilogy, Stephen Brill, who said that Disney told him to write the second one in two weeks. And now that I've rewatched the movie again, I totally believe that story after rewatching it. It it totally seems like something that a guy wrote in two weeks Um, because, I mean, there's absolutely no story. It's just all like slapstick, dumb jokes and uh, montages set set to bad music. Thank you, Dwayne, but I'm no lady. I'm a duck! Come on! Way to go, you little silly. Don't get you... Referee taking Robertson over to the penalty box. What are they going to call this penalty? Well, it's two minutes for roping. That's a new one on me. Uh, But I do have to say that Wolf the Dennis Stanson is a good villain, and uh, the kids that they added to the team were memorable, even if they're only caricatures of actual human beings instead of you know, real humans, they're just kind of cartoon characters, but still, the movie was awful. So I felt so betrayed, uh, you know, by my childhood self because D2, like I said, was my absolute favorite one. I watched that VHS all the time, wore it out, and it was so shitty. So that's just basically skip over D2 if you're rewatching these movies. It's, it's really bad. So then came D3. So by this point, after watching D2, neither Beth nor I were, were looking forward to watching this movie because we both remembered remembered it as the weakest one in the entire series. We were both like, yeah, D D three we can agree was like the shitty one, right? Everyone remembers that. But I have to say we were both pleasantly surprised because it had like a good setting. You know, it's set in this like uh, private, you know, school, and and it, that's a, a whole new thing that we've seen before. The movie also had this great new coach character who replaced Gordon Bombay and was you know. It gave some new life into the series. So even if there was way less hockey in this one, it was actually really good. And, and it just had a lot more character growth and humanity than the second one did. Sounds like the team needs you, huh? They don't need me. What they need is a new coach. You're not a little boy anymore, Charlie. Please stop acting this way. I just don't know what this guy wants from me. He won't let you just skate by. He demands more. He wants it because he knows that it is there inside of you. Like Gordon did. He needs you to lead. How can he expect me to lead when he takes away my seat? I was the captain, Hans. Look, it's only a letter, Charlie. Here, I have hundreds in there. These are not the same. Don't make fun of me, Hans. He took away the sea, Charlie. Not what was under it. So if the rewatch taught me anything, it was that I have a new love for D3, The Mighty Ducks, and that has now replaced D2 as, well, my favorite sequel. The first one I, I do think is is still the best at this point. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed D3. I, I'm, you know, honestly, I'm shocked that they have not rebooted The Mighty Ducks yet, given the age of people who grew up watching it and how easy it would be to reboot whether you had Charlie as the coach or just, you know, you could easily do it some way and you could have Gordon be the kind of old Hans like mentor who just kind of pops in every now and again. And it would be, you know, a piece of cake to do. And, 
Uh, I'm I'm so shocked that Disney hasn't gone after that easy money and and tried to tap into it at least for like a Disney Channel TV series or something. But let me give you some fun facts real quick about the Mighty Ducks trilogy uh, before I toss it over to Andy. So Stephen Herrick, who was the guy who directed the first Mighty Ducks movie, also directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Disney's live action Three Musketeers movie, the uh, live action One Hundred and One Dalmatians. And he also did the recent Dolly Parton Coat of Many Colors movies. So he's actually had a really good career um, before and since uh, he did The Mighty Ducks. Sam Wiseman, who was the guy who did that awful piece of crap, D2, also directed George of the Jungle and Dickie Roberts' former child star, which was the most recent movie he's directed. So that probably tells you what you need to know there. Meanwhile, Stephen Brill, who wrote all three of the movies, appeared in the first one as the attorney who was Gordon's rival in the courtroom. So that's the guy who actually wrote the Mighty Ducks movies. And he also wrote Heavyweights. So you want to talk about having a great career. I wrote the three Mighty Ducks movies and I wrote Heavyweights. I mean, that's you could retire and be looked at as a Hollywood legend in my eyes. So, Oh, and by the way, Heavyweights is one that does hold up. We've rewatched that one in recent years as well, and it does hold up. Still funny, uh, probably even funnier as an adult watching that movie and Ben Stiller was even better than I ever remembered him being as a kid. So there you go. The perils of the rewatch. Have you had that yourself? Has there, have there been any movies, TV shows from childhood that you've gone back and relived and, and were like, man, this was the best movie. And you watched it again. You thought, Oh my God, this is so dumb. This is terrible. Why did I ever like this? D2, the mighty ducks, big one for me, definitely falls into that category and all dogs go to heaven. Same thing, man. What a, what a disappointment. So I'm going to toss things over to Andy and uh, take a little breather here, smoke my stogie, and I'll come back in just a, a, a little bit and talk to you about one of the creepiest movies I have ever seen, which I just caught in theaters um, last night as I'm talking to you right now. So be back in just a bit. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, all right. Hey, great to be with you. My name is uh, Andy Sedlak. I'm the former music editor over at OverdueReview.com. I held down that job until some, I don't know, hacker or bug or something shut the shit down. We're still not sure what happened, but I think it's time that we, we come up with a better story. I think it's time we come up with a better explanation. Like, we should start telling people that uh, the Russians were behind it, which is believable these days. Or we had so many readers on OverdueReview.com that it, it crashed the site. Everything came 
tumbling down. Something like that. Something a little more lively than, oh, I don't know. So if you have a good lie or, or something that we could tell, please email me at sedlakjournal. That is S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all squished together at gmail.com. We'll, uh, we'll consider all explanations, no matter how implausible, no matter how impossible they may be. And we'll read them on the, uh, on the show, too, next time. So have at it. All right. Today I want to talk about something that, that's a little bit of a cliche in the music business. I want to talk about actors who are also musicians. Actors who are also musicians, and how they don't all suck. Before I get going, let me, let's, just, let's get something out of the way. I just got to play this so, so that I don't have to talk around it. Here we go. Yes, that's Eddie Murphy. The song is Party All the Time, and it may very well have been the first song you thought of when I mentioned actors who are also musicians. It is a famous song. It is an infamous song. And it went all the way to number two back in 1985. It was written and produced by Rick James. It's not a good song. It's come to represent why people are so skeptical of this topic. Party All the Time was released at the height, the very height of Eddie Murphy's fame. And it seemed like he could do no wrong. But make no mistake, this was a vanity project, an ego trip, an overreach. It's what happens when success in one medium becomes so large that you feel like you can just conquer another medium. And it's why you get eye rolls when actors take the stage. And Lord, there are a number of examples where that is entirely appropriate. Like in 1987, when again at the height of his fame, Bruce Willis put out this song. That's Respect Yourself, first made famous by the Staple Singers. The Pointer Sisters were featured on the Willis track. It went to uh, number five back in 87, so big hit. His uh, cover of Under the Boardwalk wasn't nearly as popular. Scarlett Johansson, Jamie Foxx, William Shatner, Russell Crowe, Johnny Depp, Zoe Deschanel, all actors who have released... Music. None of them 
did particularly well. Jamie Foxx did okay, but but just okay. To put it this way, do you know anybody who was like a huge fan of Jamie Foxx's music? Did you know that Keanu Reeves played bass in a band called Dog Star? Here's a tune from 1993. So, okay, Uh, a a number of examples where things didn't always work out. Vanity projects, ego trips, not exactly, not exactly a lot of fun. But if you look a little deeper, things begin to pick up. So I want to talk about a few actors who can really sling it, they can write, they can sing, they can play. The songs are smart, they're loose, they have soul. In other words, they have exactly what most of us are looking for. But I don't want you to overlook them just because they happen to be successful in another medium. And I'm a legitimate fan of all three of these bands. It's not like I've just streamed a few songs. Like, I'm, I've really, really listened, and I've really vetted these folks. Uh, and now I'm, I'm ready to deliver the good news. The first actor that I want to talk about, who also plays music, is Kevin Costner. Y'all know him. Is this heaven? It's Iowa. In truth, I've listened to Kevin Costner's music for years. In fact, I I think his music has been much more entertaining than the last several films that he's been a part of. Uh, so, So let's get down to this. His band is called Modern West. It's Kevin Costner in Modern West. They've put out four albums and eight singles. They've toured really pretty consistently since 2007, Uh, They're currently in Europe as we speak. Right, you could call it, you know, kind of roots rock, alternative country, heartland rock. It's it's got kind of like a John Cougar sensibility, uh, sort of a, a you know a, a looser Bob Seger thing. And musically, I will say, Costner not reinventing the wheel. His voice is 
it's got limited range. Uh, but but he doesn't need to sing like Prince, and he doesn't need to play like Frank Zappa. Uh, he's clearly having a ball. He's clearly committed, and the music is just fucking fun. else is in Modern West with Kevin Costner? Just a couple buddies. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really it. No one particularly noteworthy in either music or film. And they, you know what? They, they really even haven't had much success. Their highest charting album was their first one, probably my favorite of theirs, called uh, Untold Truths. It got up to number uh, 61 on the country charts. So, you know, didn't exactly pad the coffers. But that's also not exactly the point. This isn't Costner's day job. This is something that he's doing because it's enjoyable for him and the other two guys in the band. And that comes through, and that's why I like it. It's an outlet for him that also becomes an outlet for us. And the angels came down to the fall. And they held their hands as they prayed for them. They carried their souls beyond the moon and the sun, all the way to heaven, one by one. Am I putting Kevin Costner? On the same plane as Bob Dylan? No, of course not. But I enjoy the hell out of this. No shit. I listen to it all the time. I really do. Kevin Costner and Modern West have been together for over 10 years now. Not a passing phase. It's a legitimate project of his. Let's move on. Also celebrating 10 years as a band is the Boxmasters, fronted by Billy Bob Thornton. Great fried potatoes. Billy Bob Thornton and the Boxmasters have released six albums. Their music has been described as noir country, uh, which has to be one of my favorite labels ever. Noir country. My bridges got all tight The first time that we met Not only So this is interesting. Uh, the piano player with Billy Bob Thornton in this band is a session guy. He's played with so many different people and, and of many, many different styles. He's played with Carol King. He's played with Guns N' Roses. He even played with Chuck Berry. Ironically, he played with Bruce Willis when Willis was recording music back in the 80s. His name is Teddy Andretis. None of the other guys in the band are particularly well-known. 
uh, like Modern West, the Boxmasters tour regularly. Um, I actually, I, I just listened to an interview with Billy Bob Thornton on um, uh, Mark Maron's podcast, which is good. It's not quite up to stream police level, but it, but it's good. And he said in this interview, this is Thornton, that music was really his first love. It was it was music all the way. And he sort of backed into acting. And the way he kind of backed into it, he made it sound like that sort of contributed to sort of his laissez-faire approach in front of the camera. And the thing that I really like um, is that Thornton's humor and that laissez-faire approach really does kind of come through in his songs. Clearly, the guy doesn't take himself too seriously. Again, it's just... Guys, it's just enjoyable. You know how I hate those fucking cubs. I've told you at least a thousand times. Right now I can't give you no damn back rub. With two out and two on and the nine. Later on you can drive me insane. Obviously, they're having fun. They're being funny, but it's not just a goof. I mean, that's a style in the tradition of Shel Silverstein. That is the Boxmasters. Yeah, well, I grew up in music from the time I was a little kid. You know, my first band was when I was about nine or ten years old, and uh, we used to play street dances all the way through junior high and high school. And then I became a roadie uh, when I, I graduated high school and worked for a sound company for a lot of years. Moved to LA to get in a band and. Uh, uh, found that it was uh, a little more difficult than I thought it was out there. Competition was pretty stiff. And uh, I accidentally got in an acting class, and one thing led to the next, and I, I had to kind of put music aside to the 80s. The third and final band uh, that I'll discuss today is really uh, the gold standard for actors who are also musicians. It is the Bacon Brothers featuring Kevin Bacon and his brother Michael Bacon. They've been together since 1995, since 1995, around the time that Kevin Bacon was in uh, Apollo 13. The Bacon Brothers have released eight albums. Two weeks behind 
Kevin Bacon sings a lot of lead, plays guitar, but but you know Kevin Bacon. Let me tell you about Michael Bacon. He is the older of the Bacon brothers, also sings, plays guitar, and uh, he also plays uh, piano. Michael Bacon, probably didn't know this, an Emmy-winning composer. So he actually is a musician by trade. He has scored TV shows that appeared on uh, HBO, CNN, PBS, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox. He actually teamed up with uh, Ken Burns to score his documentaries. He's released three solo albums and was a sought-after songwriter in Nashville for years. This is no vanity project. When it comes to the Bacon Brothers, they're, they're definitely talented guys. played Carnegie Hall. They've opened for the band. They played the Stone Pony in Asbury Park. They've played Kimmel. They've played Fallon, Conan, and Craig Ferguson back when he had a show. The Bacon Brothers have used the same backing group forever. No one particularly noteworthy to, to you or I. Again, just, just a bunch of buddies. It's amazing to think that the, the Bacon Brothers have been together for almost 25 years. When I was 17, I asked my daddy, what does it take to be a man? He said, sit down, son, let's have a little talk. I'll try and make you understand. And then he said, years won't do it, tears won't do it. And sitting down to drink a thousand beers won't do it. Tattoos won't do it, and booze won't do it. And putting little lips in your shoes won't do it. But I'm going to tell you the thing that can. He said, you get a good woman and she'll make you a man. He said, only a good woman can. Only thing gonna make you a man. 
They actually played in Dayton, where I live, back in 2011. If you're familiar with the area, they held a, uh, a free concert at the Green. A free concert at the Green. I was working for a newspaper in Middletown. That's about, what, 35 minutes south. And uh, at the time, I was unable to get away. The, the paper pretty much consumed my life at that point. And I regret not being able to make that show. They'll be in Cleveland in like a month or two. And I'm seriously thinking about making the trip up. Also, the Bacon Brothers, a good follow on social media, if uh, that is your scene. Hey, this is Michael Bacon from the Bacon Brothers. This is Kevin Bacon. And we first started the band, um, which is now, they tell us, 22, 23 years ago. Um, Kevin really didn't have much technical experience in creating music, producing music. Guitar playing, recording studio. I had a recording studio. We did everything in my studio. But if you switch back to today, you know, Kevin has his own studio. He can play all his own instruments and do his own production. So uh, he doesn't need me as much as he did originally. So most of our writing is done separately. Uh, And the process is first you write the song and you decide it's okay. Then uh, we play it for our respective wives. And um, that is kind of one of the most daunting parts of it. And then, or we'll play for each other first. I mean, you know. Think about the best qualities that come with an actor. Comedic timing. They understand character. Your best actors understand voice, angles, perspective, motivation. Musicians like Costner and like Billy Bob Thornton can bring some of those finer qualities of being an actor into their music. So for every Bruce Willis, there is a Bacon Brothers. For every Lazy Eddie Murphy pop song or, or uh, Paris Hilton single, uh, there's a Kevin Costner in Modern West. The lesson is this. Don't be so quick to write off actors uh, who also dabble in music. Uh, that's kind of that's a, that's a lazy angle. You, know? you, you just have to know where to look. Uh, and if you know of any actors that also do some really good stuff, I listened to Russell Crowe's stuff, and it's you know his it didn't really grab me. I was kind of disappointed. But hey, if you know anybody uh, who's an actor, also does music, and and I didn't mention them, you feel like should be mentioned, shoot me an email: sedlakjournal at gmail dot com. S e d l a k all squished together at gmail dot com. And now, friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. Toward the end of uh, every show, I give you five more songs to add to this playlist. So then when you go and look it up on Spotify, you'll hear all of these things. So the first of five songs that I'm going to give you today that we're going to add to our ever-evolving, perfect Stream Police playlist is by a group called The Gourds. They're covering... Snoop Dogg, this is Jen and Juice. Money on my mind. Rolling out straight, 
Next, I, I figured you'd like that. Next from Led Zeppelin, it's all of my love. I'm going to give you another Zeppelin song, uh, same album, too, from In Through the Outdoor. It's Hot Dog. In the uh, two or three years or whatever since we've done this show, I don't think I've ever uh, recommended anything by Eric Clapton. I'll change that today, and this is a deep cut. It's called uh, Walk Out in the Rain. Bob Dylan actually wrote that song. Last but not least, I think you should hear a tune called Fine Line. It's by Parker Millsap. I've been walking the fine line Between the form and the function Between the gall and the gumption All right, that's it from me. Thanks so much for your attention. Thanks for letting me bend your ear a little bit. I'm going to toss it uh, toss it back to Clint. 
behave, will you? Peace. Thank you very much, Andy. Much appreciated. And I got to say, I never got too into uh, any of the actors who turned into musicians, but there were a few musicians who did acting roles that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and two of them came in the movie Shortcuts, which is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. Huey Lewis is in that movie. Does a really nice job um, with what he's given to do. And Lyle Lovett in that movie is also very strong. So, yeah, you know, there have been a, a couple cases where I think musicians have... Oh, and Tom Waits is in that movie, too. Almost totally forgot that he was in that. Man, Robert Altman just grabbing the musicians up. And, and three really good musicians, too. Lyle Lovett, Tom Waits, and Huey Lewis. Gave him roles in, in that movie, and that's one of my absolute very favorite movies. The first five-star movie ever at OverdueReview.com for you trivia nerds. All right, speaking of movies that I really enjoyed, uh, last night Beth and I went to uh, went to the theater and saw uh, a, a – a, we always like going to see scary movies. I've talked about scary movies a lot on the show in the past, usually especially in the October episodes. Um, so you know I love this genre, and I've always said that when – horror is done well it's like country music when country music is done well it can be the best you know genre of music ever i mean it, there's just something about it it's so universal it, it can just hit all the right things it can talk about it can drop so many great lessons about life it can be so catchy it can just be perfect when it's done well when it's done poorly it's the shittiest thing ever and it's the same with horror when you get somebody who really takes it seriously has a great original idea uh doesn't rely on cheap stuff uh, you could, it's magic, man. When you get those really, truly great horror movies, um, you know, the Rosemary's Babies and the Shinings and, you know, even Scream and the original Blair Witch Project and movies like that, that are just original and really well done. They scare the shit out of you. It's such a great genre, but most of the time it's just done for, you know, for cheap money. So we went and saw this movie Hereditary. It's called Hereditary. It came out, you know, just this year. And it has a fantastic cast, which I'll get into in just a minute. But I have to say, this is a must-see for you if you love horror, especially if you're not into slasher movies. Like, if you don't like Scream, and you don't like Texas Chainsaw, and you don't like Halloween, those kind of movies, where somebody's just chasing people around and killing them throughout the movie, you'll. this is more up your alley. If you were more into, like, the, the Conjuring-type horror movies, um, where it's more of a psychological thing, The Sixth Sense, stuff like that, I think you'll dig this one. Um and it comes from this guy named uh, Ari Aster, who's a writer and director making his debut with this movie. This is his first feature film. Um, and I cannot wait to see what this guy does next because he's apparently very interested in horror. So it's cool that we've got another serious horror director. Hopefully he sticks with doing some horror for a little while and doesn't just dabble. And then, well, I, I found success, so now I'm going to try to do an Oscar-winning drama uh, as as usually happens with some of these guys when they find some success. I think I'm going to just start doing comedy. Um, so hopefully he stays in the, the horror lane and we get some more great stuff out of this guy. Um, but I have to say Hereditary was up there with the absolute creepiest movies that I've ever seen. It was just so unnerving, and I think that's the best word to describe this movie. It's just unnerving. There's just something about it. The whole time you're watching it, you have this gross feeling in your stomach you're just dreading what is going to happen next, and you have no clue what's going to happen next. It's unpredictable, which is such a crazy thing for a horror movie to be. But it is unpredictable. I will say, you know, he does 
there are a few tropey things that he gets into with, you know, calling on the spirits and lighting the candles and having a seance and that kind of shit. But uh, there, there's a lot of stuff in here that I have not seen done before, and I haven't seen it done with this kind of skill before. And there's great performances in this movie from top to bottom. I mean, it's another rarity in horror when you get good actors uh, reciting, you know, good dialogue and playing characters that you actually care about. That's the the problem with most horror movies is they don't do the character work. So you don't care when people are getting killed. You know, you care more when you're watching Halloween, when you're watching Nightmare on Elm Street, you care more about Freddy Krueger and about Michael Myers because those are the characters you've done, you've gotten more connected with over the course of the film. Those are the people that you've learned more about their backstories than about the actual victims. So you're kind of rooting for the killer in those movies. This movie does the character work, so you care about the characters, and it's not about the evil force preying upon them. It's more about them, and you feel bad for them, and you just want you kind of want them to get out of it alive, but you want to see where things are going to go. Great performances from top to bottom, though. Like I said, Tony Collette at the very top, who gives a strong emotional performance here, playing the kind of role that she has really made an art form out of playing, which is the just kind of frazzled... Um, mom sometimes not mom other times but just like the frazzled woman she just does a very good job at at playing like the kind of mentally unstable woman and she does it here again and you feel for her a lot there are some scenes where she really reaches deep and it's like it's like guttural the emotion that she gives you uh gabriel byrne always good uh he's very understated here but he does some nice work as well and the great ann dowd comes back again creepy as she's ever been uh, which she's been creepy in several movies uh, before. If you ever saw Compliance or if you ever saw The Leftovers, you know what I'm talking about. But she does some really uh, good work here. Also, it's like that. It's like sneaky creepy. You don't know she's. You don't know she's creepy, but you just kind of feel it. Like it's not anything she's saying or doing. You just feel it. You just know something's happening, and that's the work of the actor. That's not the work of the writer as much. So I don't want to really give anything away. Because I went into Hereditary not knowing anything about it. I had no clue what it was about. Didn't see a trailer. Didn't read a synopsis. I knew nothing about the story. And I think that that is the best thing when you go into a movie. That's why I like going to screenings. Because it, before a movie comes out. Because I usually don't know anything about them. And it gives me a, a blank page. So I just want to tell you. Without giving anything away. Let's just say that this movie is it involves witchcraft and unwanted influences that family members can have on us, even when we think we've done everything we can to be aware and insulate ourselves from those family members, those toxic people that are in our lives that we just we want to not have anything to do with, but you can't choose them because they're family. So that's kind of what this movie is about. And it's very scary, uh, but it's not no jump scares and stuff like that. So if, if jump scares make you nervous, if you don't like when things pop out, if you don't like when the music swells and then builds to this crescendo and then, you know, the, the violins like stab you, basically. If you don't like that kind of stuff, then again, I think you'll dig hereditary. But it is scary. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not scary. It's definitely scary and so creepy and it'll make you uncomfortable. Um, it's gory too. So if you don't like gore, then I don't know if you're going to like it, but, uh, this is definitely a movie that's cut from the same cloth as the witch, the 2016 movie that I raved about here on uh, the stream police when I saw it in theaters years ago. But, uh, this one is set in modern day. I don't know if I liked it quite as much as the witch. I don't know if it stuck with me as much, but it's right there. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the witch is, is fantastic. So I'm, I'm putting in, in rarefied air there. As I've said, though, uh, before on this show, we get about one great horror movie every year. 
Like in that whole genre, we might get one great one a year. So it's it's really, you know, it's not common that we get a really good one. In the past few years, the ones that, you know, I'd put on there, The Witch, uh, Get Out, obviously, Don't Breathe was a really good one as well. Um, I found Don't Breathe terrifying. Uh, that one probably scared me more than any of those other ones. But, you know, I'd also maybe put The Killing of a Sacred Deer in there, even though, you know, it's not technically a horror movie, but it was just like a, a creepy psychological thing. But you can definitely add Hereditary to that list. Very creepy movie, just really scary. And um, it's, I mean, it's the middle of summer, so that's when they put it in theaters. It's not October, obviously, so it's not great time to be thinking about horror movies. But if you love horror, then it doesn't matter what time of year it is. You'll always like going in there and scaring the shit out of yourself. I, I think you should see it in theaters because the audible gasps that you'll hear sometimes uh, are what make watching horror such a unique experience and this movie is is a lot is very quiet most of the time so you'll be able to hear the people in the theater with you gasping when things happen uh, as long as you're not doing it yourself but uh, like i said hereditary is right now in theaters it's uh it's a very strong horror movie and that genre we just it doesn't get enough love but when it does what it's supposed to it's really hard to beat a really good horror movie and i think this one's right up there so hereditary right now is in theaters i uh I'm telling you, you should give it a watch. If you don't mind kind of things being ambiguous, if you don't mind doing some detective work yourself, um, and if you don't need things all spelled out for you, because I heard some people leave in theater being like, well, what the hell just happened? What was that? So it's one of those movies. It, they don't hold your hand. It's not like, who's the killer going to get caught or not? It's not that kind of thing. So it's a little bit deeper, but it still works as just a movie that will scare the shit out of you and uh, affect you emotionally because I really did care about these characters, which is a rare thing in any horror movie. So that's in theaters right now. It's called Hereditary. just seems like there might be something you want to say. Yeah. Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine. Then say what you want to say then. Hey, Dad. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine. Release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? Okay, and before I send you out the door... Let me give you my traditional picks on Netflix and Amazon. What's new this month to Netflix and Amazon? I'm going to give you uh, a pick from each that I think you definitely should check out. First off, on Netflix, from 1993, it's Menace to Society. This is the movie that put the Hughes brothers on the map, um, and it is a gritty film, so gritty, with some very hard lessons being taught to you throughout. Um, and this one is right up there with Boys in the Hood, which is one of my absolute favorite movies as uh, these are like the two best of the black gangster movies that came out in the 1990s. There was this whole crop of black gangster movies that just started popping up in the early 90s with the, the rise of gangster rap. Um, these movies were perfect companions to that music and gave a more human side to what that mu that music was, you know, just all about being hard and, uh, you know, kind of impressing the listener. These movies were much more human and had, you know, much more of a lesson in them for people who wanted to learn them. So Menace to Society right now is on Netflix. So give that one a watch. Um, and you'll probably add it to your favorites list as well. It's from 1993. And that is on Netflix now. Meanwhile, on Amazon, they had a lot of good stuff join Amazon Prime uh, Video. 
in July. Uh, NYPD Blues back on there, Blazing Saddles, Mulholland Drive, uh, V for Vendetta. That's one of Beth's favorite movies, and uh, Zodiac, one of my uh, absolute favorites. There is uh, on Amazon. But I got to give you, uh, as far as my pick goes, my one pick. If you had to stream one movie on Amazon this month, I would tell you it would be 2012's The Act of Killing, because. This might be the best documentary that I've ever seen. And I, uh, documentaries are like horror. I've spent a lot of time devouring them. I've watched tons of them. I've watched, you know, pretty much all the great ones and some of the not so great ones as well. Um, but The Act of Killing is is right up there with the absolute best documentaries. It's right up there with Brothers Keeper and with The Thin Blue Line and, you know, with uh, Shoah. It's just uh, one of those movies that I've never stopped thinking about since I first saw it a few years ago. It's an incredible experience that you will not believe, um, but everything that's happening is real, and it's happening right in front of you, and it's just a masterwork of manipulation on the on the part of the filmmaker with the subjects that he's dealing with, and these are subjects that you that you don't feel bad for at all with them being manipulated. So there's just no other movie like The Act of Killing. I don't want to tell you too much about it because, I, I, again, I didn't know a lot about it before I went into it, but I was floored, and it's one of those movies I've never stopped thinking about. So on Amazon right now, if you're a documentary fiend, 2012's The Act of Killing is one you will not, uh, you will not regret watching. I'll tell you that right now. All right, that's going to do it for the Stream Police podcast for July. We'll catch you guys in August. Hopefully you're doing well out there. Always uh, want to read your emails and hear what you think about the show and what you're watching and what you're listening to right now. You can write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. And Andy is out there at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. Hit us up uh, whenever you want to talk to you next time once again i'm clint davis signing off from my closet in cincinnati thanks again to uh andy up there in dayton and uh we'll talk to you guys next time until then stream on my friend Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.